stories of missing time. Uh, cattle mutilation. Yep. There, there were things that are, that you find in headlines today. But there were also some very unique stories, um, that were different than anything that you're probably ever gonna read anyplace else, you know? Ladies and gentlemen, It was just amazing, the story, you know, of, I mean, you know, how he talked about following those little footsteps. And when they get up to the top of the mountain, how there's a clearing there. And in that clearing was that round circle where there was no snow. These were stories that they remembered, stories of events that happened. The alien uh, becomes quite interested in the fact that this dog obeys his commands, and and so he demonstrates some things for him, kind of showing off. And when they get to the crash, the alien wants the dog. I feel privileged to have been told the stories, to have them, you know, given to me, and I just hope that. It, in some way, does help unravel the mystery that we've been dealing with for over a century now, or even longer than that. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with Another edition of BOA Audio Season 7 coming at you a little later than I would like, but we have an awesome episode on tap for you folks. On this edition of the program, we are joined by author Artie Sixkiller Clark, who is going to share her revelatory and unique research into American Indian experiences with UFOs and ETs, as chronicled in her new book, From Anomalous Books, Encounters with star people. And you are going to hear me rave about this book when the conversation starts, because I absolutely loved it. I cannot recommend it enough to the BOA audio listeners. What makes this a special book is that these are stories that were confided to Artie from Native Americans that really, prior to the publication of the book, only maybe two or three people had ever heard. And they are breathtaking. I'm going to give you a little teaser of them in a moment, but really, folks, they are fascinating and fresh. As I said, only a handful of people have ever heard these stories up until Artie put the book out, and I'm sure a myriad of listeners right now are hearing these tales for the very first time. Over the course of the conversation, you are going to hear stories that include an alien being rescued from a blizzard, a man who claims aliens use his reservation land to drop off ETs to integrate into society, a pair of women who contend that they were stranded aliens on Earth, as well as how one man thwarted an ET from stealing his dog. We'll also really dig into the process and find out how Artie ended up becoming the confidant to these Native Americans who decided to share their stories with her, and we'll look at some of the trends and outliers that emerged from the many stories she's been told over the years. 
And there's also some really interesting insights we're going to learn about the culture of American Indians, including their preferred nomenclature, Native American reservations, the boarding school era of Indian education, and other fascinating insights into the original inhabitants of North America. So a whole slew of additional material that I didn't even know we were going to get into before the conversation started and stuff that I really enjoyed learning about. Altogether, it is a truly breathtaking edition of the program, which offers a wealth of previously untold tales of UFO and ET encounters by witnesses who have a unique respect for the phenomenon, with our guest, Artie Sixkiller Clark. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Artie Sixkiller Clark, please allow me to provide you with a little background on her. Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark, a professor emeritus at Montana State University, has dedicated her life and career to working with indigenous populations. She has been adopted and given traditional names by three Northern Plains tribes, including the Blackfeet, the Northern Cheyenne, and the Lakota Sioux. The author of several children's books and the best-selling Sisters in the Blood, she continues to work as a consultant to American Indian tribes and indigenous communities worldwide, and is currently working on a second volume of work about the indigenous people of Mexico and the Star People. Her website is www.sixkiller.com. Pretty simple, all one word. Sixkiller.com. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on February 4th, 2012. Artie, Sixkiller Clark, talking about encounters with star people on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Very excited about this installment of the program. Our guest is Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark, and she is the author of the fantastic book, Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians. Folks, this book is tremendous. I just read it this past week and could not put it down. And this is coming from someone who's been looking at the UFO phenomenon for years and years and years. And often you've heard me on the program, folks, talk about how I get tired of hearing the same old stories over and over and over again. Well, this book was like a breath of fresh air. It, it, it contains so many really amazing stories from American Indians regarding a whole myriad of strange encounters with ETs or star people as they're known and uh, UFOs. So just some tremendous stuff and really just what I needed uh, as I sort of get more and more cynical about the UFO phenomenon. This book really kind of uh, gave me a breath of fresh air. So I cannot wait to talk about it with Artie. So welcome to the program, Artie. This is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I think that's what every guest thinks when they start, yeah. Right. I'm sure. I, I think it's going to be, I think we're going to have some fun. Let's, you know, we usually start out here with the standard bio background, you know, who is Artie Sixkiller Clark, and, you know, how did you end up putting together encounters with star people? Well, um, my profession, I've been a teacher, a school administrator, and a college professor. Um, for many, many years, and um, when I first came to Montana State University, um, I was out, um, one, of, one of the things I did was go out and recruit Native students to come to MSU to study to be teachers and principals and superintendents, and I wrote grants um, to get scholarship money 
uh, to fund their education. And I was out on one of the reservations, and a, a colleague who hosted me out there um, uh, that evening said to me, if you've got time, you know, um, I, I want you to take a ride with me. And so uh, we went up in the hills above his little village, and he proceeded to say, well, now, we'll, if we're lucky, they'll come. And I said, well, uh, who will come? And he said, well, the ancestors, the star people. And as I sat there and I listened to him, and, and we didn't see anything that night, unfortunately, but I began wondering how many tribes out there had similar stories and um, and if people would be willing to tell me the stories. So I went back to the university, and I was talking with one of the professors there, and he said, well, you know, there are a lot of tribes that have star stories, Um old, old legends about uh, interaction with star people or or events that went on in the heavens. And and so I began researching that. And when I would go out on my trips to recruit students or go out to do my research, because later I got a lot of grants to do research um, uh, with children and women, and um, I started asking questions. And were there any was there anyone out there that had had experiences with UFOs? And it would come at maybe a, a dinner or, you know, and people started uh, coming forth and telling me their stories. And um, at first I really had no intention um, of writing the book. It was just for my own curiosity. I was interested in this whole phenomena. And... Um, and actually, when I had put everything away and locked it away, and um, and I was um, I had retired from the university, and and I was a, about a year after I retired, maybe a couple. I got a call from um, um, some people um, um, in South Dakota asking me if I would be willing to come out of retirement and do a five-year project with them uh, and evaluate and conduct research on a project that they had been funded by the federal government. And so I went to Washington. I went to a training institute. I I went through the whole process, and then I made my preliminary trip to the reservation. And I still wasn't quite sure if I wanted to commit for five years. And so that afternoon, we're sitting around, and there's a group of us women. We're having lunch together, and... And someone mentioned something about a UFO, and I began telling them a few of the stories that I had collected over the years. And one of the ladies said to me, she said, what are you going to do with all these stories? And I said, well, probably nothing. And she said, well, I really think this is a part of our oral narratives. This has to be written down. You need to write a book about this because once you pass, nobody is ever going to know about this. Yeah. And so I, all the way home, I'm thinking, do I want to write a book or do I want to take this job? And I thought, well, you know, I spent a lot of years out there doing this, that same thing, doing research and evaluation. And did I want to get back into that or did I want to try my hand at writing a book? And so the book went out, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah, we and know that's the end. what I yeah. did. I wrote the book. <laughs> we, we know the decision you made, yeah. You're right. Well, it was so a- that's how it all came to be. Awesome, awesome. Well, it was a great decision. I commend you for it. Uh, like I said earlier in the introduction, you hear so many stories, but this is like there's something really special about these stories, not just because they're so frank 
which I thought was really interesting, is the frankness of the way uh, these witnesses tell these stories. They're not like the typical witnesses. And also, I thought it was really commendable, I guess you could say, that most of these stories, I think you were like maybe the second or the third person to know about it, and up until you published the book, probably only the second or third person to have heard the story. That's true. I mean, these are incredibly rare encounters. And that, both of what you're saying is true. You know, uh, they hadn't discussed it. Actually, I think some of them had told their families. A, 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 a couple of them had told friends. Right. But for most part, they just kept it quiet. You know, it was more like, um, well, it happened, and that's the way it happened, and there's no need to dwell on it or talk about it. And and one of the things that, that in, in many of the Native communities, they were – they wanted to protect their reservation. They didn't want uh, some travesty made out of the whole thing or a spectacle, hmm. you know, to happen. And so they were very cautious about, um, you know, not not getting the word out there so that people could would start. They didn't want um, they didn't want a lot of people coming around and asking questions, you know. Especially UFO fans. Right, and that's what they were <laughs> concerned about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and I don't blame them for that. Uh, yeah, so like I said, just tremendous stuff. And, and you know, as the, as the person who encouraged you to write the book, you know, made the point. If not, if not for you, these stories almost certainly never would have got out there. So it's, it's, I don't it's, think so because the people who told me, you know, told, told them to me with the understanding that I wouldn't reveal who they were. But at the same time, you know, um, I, I tried to establish an atmosphere where they were just talking to a friend. Right. And I know that, you know, some people will say, well, then nobody else can follow up on it. Nobody knows whether it's true or not. Well, the fact of the matter is it's true, and I promised the people that nobody would be able to follow up on them. You know, they just did not want that. And if they ever come out and say, well, I'm the person in the book, and I'm the one who told the story, that's up to them. It won't come from me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, I'm already finding this conversation fascinating. I'm going to be tongue-tied, I think, as I go along, as we talk more. But there's a couple of sort of notes in the beginning of the book that I wanted to touch on. Uh, in the beginning, you have this author's note, and I think it's important that we talk about this because I never uh, heard this sort of new development in the nomenclature of American Indians. But you say in the book that now it's it's accepted that to call to call them American Indians rather than Native Americans, right? Because one of the things that we that you know, um, uh, there are a lot of of uh, Native researchers today and Native writers, and one of the things is I I mentioned in there uh, Tim Gallego, who was one of the the first and greatest American journal, um, Indian journalists, said that. All of his life, you know, he started being confronted with this issue. How can you call yourself Native American? I'm Native American, too, because I was born here, and that makes me Native American. So basically what we decided to do is to use American Indian, which distinguishes us from those who are Native born to this land, because you're right, you know, you're Native American, and and anybody who's born here is Native to America. So we decided... Um, professionally to use American Indian. And of course, tribes always prefer to be called by their own name, which is, you know, Lakota instead of Sioux or, or, um, um, you know, rather than, than the, the name that was given to them by, you know, the, um, Euro-American society. But, um, yeah, we use American Indian. You're going to find that more and more and more. 
Yeah, that's fascinating in a way because it was. And I quote Tim Gallego there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, about that, you know, because he he spoke um, spoke about that very issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you certainly explain it very well. I, like I said, I'd never even growing up. I, you know. I'd always been told that you weren't supposed to call Native Americans Indians. So now it's changed completely. It's turned back around the other way. So it's interesting. And, and you could understand why. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that, that's what took me by surprise that now they've embraced it. So Right. And then let's talk a little bit about the preface, because that's where you really sort of explain how this all came together. Uh, as far as I, I thought it was interesting, you know, and you, you sort of alluded to this here earlier. You say in the preface that there's these two kinds of research. The uh, I may mispronounce these, but the etic research and the emic research. Right, etic and emic. Yeah, they, well, that's there you go. See, <laughs> thank you. Um, so I guess talk about that and how you how your style is really different. Because I thought it was like you said. I mean, the, these stories are really being told on a personal level. It's not like you're corralling folks and and sort of cajoling them into telling the story. More often than not, it, they just sort of come up, you know, in happenstance. In a conversation right. or... Yeah. Yeah. When, if you look, anthropologists talk about etic and emic research. Etic is a, is, comes from the perspective of an outsider, somebody who is outside the culture looking in. And so it's very easy to, as an outsider who is unfamiliar with the culture, to misinterpret uh, you observe something and you misinterpret it because you don't understand how it works within the culture. An emic perspective is coming from someone inside the culture, someone who has um, lived, um, uh, say, in this case, among Native people who know how they, um, uh, you know, know how they respond to situations and and know something about the traditions. Now, I'm not saying I knew something about all the culture of all the people I interviewed, but I knew how to approach people. I knew what was acceptable. I knew how you treated elders, um, uh, you know, and so that made for a different situation. I, I talk about how, um, you know, often you find researchers who will go out and pay somebody $2 and a half or $3 or $10 to fill out a um, a form, a questionnaire. Right. And they think nothing of that. But on my in my case, um, I'll go with food and and um or different kinds of things tobacco uh, uh and present to people there's no difference but um sometimes people don't understand that when they look at what i do because they say well you know you're bribing them well it's no different than giving them a 10 dollar bill or a 5 dollar bill um to fill out a, a questionnaire and so it's just understanding the enough about the culture to go in and and to be able to put people at ease and for me to feel at ease. Exactly. Um, and and then the other thing, recognizing how, um, uh, you know, how star legends were so much a part of a lot of the cultures I was visiting, being able to um, to be accepting of what they told me without questioning it or uh, criticizing or evaluating it or um, putting my opinion um that's something I really worked at not trying to do to not influence them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're sort of just like recording these stories, which is great. Uh, right. And I asking did. questions where, where you know, where it's pertinent to flesh out the details, but not sort of trying to poke holes in the story. 
Right. And then accepting what they said, you know, as, as uh, um, you know, that I in no way discounted what they had to tell me. Hmm. And I think that, that was an important part of getting the information. Well, well like I said when we started here, uh, I thought it was interesting just to kind of get the sense in reading their stories that they were really very matter-of-fact about it. You kind of made mention yeah. of this, you know. They were like, well, this is what happened. It didn't seem like the, the people telling you the stories were trying to sensationalize it or, or you know, add color for, for dramatic effect. It was like they were just telling you what happened in, in, plain, in plain language, and, uh-huh. and even though these were amazing stories. Well, and, and one of them, and this might come as a surprise, but, you know, I collected close to a 1,000 stories. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Um, uh, and, and, yeah. um, and it was really difficult to choose the ones that I was going to tell because I could have written a dozen books um, about the stories that, that I was told. I tried to choose a variety of stories, ones that would demonstrate the uniqueness um, of the stories I was told and um, and at the same time present um, an overall view of the phenomena, you know, there were um, there were stories of missing time. Um, there were, you know, the same uh, cattle mutilation. Yep. There, there were things that are that you find in in uh, headlines today, but there were also some very unique stories um, that were different than anything that you're probably ever going to read anyplace else. You know. Absolutely. And, yeah. And that's that's the thing that I tried to to. Um, it's just the way um, I think American Indians look at it in a different perspective. Uh, that it's all a part of the the worldview, the cosmos, and and uh, a, a part of of the universe. Exactly. It's not just that they were matter of fact about the story, but they were matter of fact almost about the facts of the story. It was like, right. You know. That is that is a that is not anything uncommon. That. If you're, you know, that that it's just part of of the universe. Exactly. It was like I said earlier. It was very, it was refreshing. It was really refreshing to hear these stories, uh, especially when we see so much garbage in the paranormal community in the UFO field. It's like this was such a nice book. <laughs> you know, one of the things that that interested me so much as they were telling the stories is they weren't hypnotized. They weren't. Um, Right. It's important to stress that. Yeah. They were none of those kinds of things. These were were stories that that uh, they remembered stories of events that happened, and uh, it, it was, they were quite unusual. And you know the story of the of the man who told the story about. He said, "Everybody says you know um, uh, talks about little green men, but my aliens had red eyes." And he made that bracelet with the alien with the red eyes and gave that to me, you know. And just those unique things that happened, you know, during this whole process that I don't think other interviewers have ever encountered. Oh, certainly not. Certainly not. Now, I'm sure people are going to want to hear some stories, so we'll, we'll, we'll sort of ease them into some of these as we go along. And let's start with one. Uh, I had it here later in the notes, but it sort of sets up a point I want to make later. So... Tell me about this, the story of the Alaskan blizzard. Did that right. ring a bell for you? <laughs> it's, oh, a pretty yeah. remem- it's a pretty memorable story. I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, yeah. the young man as if he were 
he were sitting across from me today. I mean, he came in and walked in. I'm sitting in a restaurant, and he he came in to to tell me um, that somebody told him I was collecting stories about uh, UFO encounters, and and so he came to talk to me. And I think when he came to see me, I mean, he was. Um, I think it was to get it off his chest. He hadn't told other people. He had been pretty quiet about it. But I think, you know, he just needed somebody to talk to, somebody to say, well, you know, you're not the only one. Right. You're not the only one that these things have happened to. And I was able to do that for him because um, uh, his story was one of the most unusual, obviously, that that I heard. Um, you know, he, he uh, ran that snowplow and... Uh, a, a terrible blizzard comes up. And in fact, I happened to be, uh, in that vicinity that night that that blizzard came. And he, he tells about, uh, how he, he comes upon this, this spacecraft sitting in the middle of the road. And he stops his snowplow and this, alien that is actually outside the outside the craft and the craft leaves without him and um he invites him into to stay with him out of the cold because the alien tells him he's freezing yeah. and uh, the alien has the ability to appear and disappear uh, apparently at will and when i asked him i said well what did the two of you talk about he said i was so scared i didn't even think of anything to say and apparently um, they didn't do a lot of talking, although the alien did talk to him a little bit about um, some kind of mag- magnetism used in, in pr- propulsion. Uh, he took him back to the same spot, and the craft came back and got him. And, and uh, a couple of days later, the military showed up uh, in the town where where he was working asking questions if anybody had seen a UFO. And he just kept his mouth shut. He figured that he didn't need to tell anybody anything. Yeah. But what an interesting story. The, I was I was left agog at that one. I was just like, oh my god, this is remarkable. <laughs> it, it was a remarkable story, and he told it with such sincerity that I believe it happened to him. Right, right. And like you pointed out, this this was recent, relatively oh, yeah. speaking. Oh yeah. This is very recent. Yeah. So we're not just talking about old legends and stuff like that. Oh, folks. no, we're this is something that happened course, to yeah. him while he was on the job in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> and, uh, um, and and he's, you know, I'm, I mean, he admitted that it, it was a little bit disconcerting. But when he came to me, he, he just, one of the things that he he said, you know, he talked to me about was, were there other people out there that similar things had happened to you know, I mean, he was he was wanting that kind of assurance, and of course there were. I mean, not as not in the same way as it happened to him, but certainly other people had had, had encounters, and um, and that seemed to you know make him feel good that that he was able to right. You know that it wasn't something out of the that nobody else had ever experienced. Well, one of the things uh, that that piggybacks onto that story is uh, in a couple of the of the stories that you're told. The, the aliens or the star people, uh, I guess we can kind of use those, you know, interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, they exhibit almost like human-like qualities in some sense, uh, as, as seen in that story. And in another one, 
uh, this guy talks to an alien, and the alien says he couldn't resist talking to a human, and he'll probably get in trouble for it, which I thought was interesting, because you think that there are these, these cold and calculating type creatures, but then they exhibit these kind of, you know, feelings. And, and in the Blizzard story, the, the alien says, uh, we saw you coming, we got frightened, we left, and right. they left me behind. It's a young crew, they're probably going to get in trouble for this. Right. So it's like almost uh, that, a And that glimpse. happened a couple of times that, that, that people, uh, that uh, in those stories that somebody said, you know, that, that they were concerned that they were going to, um, you know, have some problems with their superiors because of because of what they, their encounter with humans. Because they're not, one of the things that I heard over and over again was that whole concept of universal non-interference. Yeah. Uh, which I hadn't heard before, um, but that that there is this this I don't know if you call it a law or what you call it, um, but um, an understanding of not that there non interference that that when you visit you observe you collect data but you do not interfere, and and when I questioned the one elder who said that that uh, he apparently. Uh, had a lot of encounters. He said, "Well, they're just they're different. They're different uh, uh, races, uh, just as there are here. Different people, uh, not people, but different um, uh, entities or what entities that, uh, and they don't always abide by the law, just mm. like we don't always abide by the law. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, that would account for perhaps abductions or." Uh, impregnating, you know, females, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But as a rule, the group, uh, had, they had agreed on non-interfering with, with, uh, uh, the people of planet Earth. And, uh, so they had that concern. Um, but then you remember in the case of the, of the, the, uh, Navajo elder who helps the um, the alien uh, or star star man back to his craft because he was lost. Yes. Um, and he takes his young grandson with him. Do you remember that story? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now see, they came out to greet him. So there was that too. So there, that's one, two people saying that were not that they they encountered aliens who were concerned about interacting with them, even though they wanted to, and another one saying. That they came out and, and greeted his grandfather, you know, and then later indicated he came back and visited him again when the grandfather was dying. Remember? Yeah. So it makes it makes you wonder what what kind of rules they're beholden to. So right. Or if the, if if you know these groups are so distinctly different um, that uh, you know that. Uh, they abide by their own rules. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. But apparently, you know, uh, I know the one elder told me that this is something that that they felt that was really important is that whole idea of non-interference. Well, there's certainly, yeah, that's that's been sort of speculated upon in ufology for years and years and years just because of why they keep coming here and not doing anything. So it stands to reason something's holding them back from letting us know that they're around. Um, I did think, just to, just to even go a little bit deeper into that, the, I'm remembering now, the again, the story about the guy in the blizzard. When the alien gets picked up, he kind of turns around and gives him a little salute. Like, thank right. you, like, thank you for, <laughs> for yeah. saving my life, yeah. which I thought was pretty... Almost like a human-like character. Right, right. That's right. what I really liked about those stories, too. It's, it, 
you very rarely hear the facade come down from their side. Where I don't think I've ever heard a story where the the ET is like, "Listen, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I had to do it." Like I don't think well, I've ever heard a story. What about the one where, where the little boy gives him a marble? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and and he takes this marble, and then these two children, this brother and sister, just sit out at night and fantasize about where their marble might be, and 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 they tell me this story when they're adults, and they tell it to me. The, the 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 sister tells me about it before I even meet the brother, and they have the same story to tell. Um, but I found that to be just a a, a fascinating story. And the, the sister, to this day, hasn't forgiven him for taking that marble down there because she said if she had known he had taken a marble, she would have taken something, too. You know, <laughs> she would have had something out there. But, you know, there there were um, a number of situations where where the the star people were made to appear as uh, have human-like qualities. Hmm. But in other cases, you know, you didn't find that. You know, you, right. you remember the story of Willie Joe. Willie Joe was taken, and he didn't want to go, and he'd been taken from the time he was a little boy. And he's telling the story of being cloned, that they had created another uh, another entity that looked exactly like him. And every year they came and they took him. Right. There are certainly and, some. Oh, God, I'm sorry. And and he was very angry about it. You know, I mean, he hmm. didn't. He wasn't. Um, uh, and he was very fearful that the same thing would happen to his nieces and nephews. I mean, he said he had never married because he didn't want children to go through that. His children to go through that. And so he was very protective of his nieces and nephews. Not that he could have done anything about it. It didn't sound like because he couldn't protect himself. Well, there's certainly, you know, like we're we're talking about sort of the human aspects of these entities, but there are, as you said, there's some there's some troubling stories in there too. I mean, there's there's one with the the guy who says the aliens come and drop off carloads of oh, yeah. human-looking aliens that just drive off of his property into into God knows where. I think he said, you know, probably to bus stations or airports and, and to spread out it into the population, which is... And that was one of the most chilling stories mm. I heard. Yeah. Um, and Leland was such a, such a wonderful gentleman. And I have no doubt that this happened. And, of course, then, you know, the last time I saw him, his friend was staying there, this old cowboy uh, that had been his friend for, you know, 60, 70 years came and was staying with him because Leland wasn't doing too well. And I had gone there, and they and he had verified that, the, you know, that he had, while he was staying there, that he had seen the same thing, the craft coming, it lowering this automobile with these entities in it, and and uh, then they're leaving, uh, driving away. And um, the first time he told me the story, he took me out to show me the tire tracks. Yeah. And he said, this is where they come, and this is how they drive out of my, off my property. And um, and so I have no doubt that he was telling the truth. Absolutely none. Right. And just to flesh it out even more, I guess, uh, talk a little bit about, he, he changed the tire for one of these cars. He right. isn't just witnessing a car coming out of a UFO. He actually dealt with one of these cars. Well, and, and he said that the, uh, one of the tires went flat. And he said the the um, uh, the entity came to his door, but but never knocked, just stood out there. 
like he didn't know what to do. And uh, finally, he opened the door. And the comment that interested me, too, is he said that, you know, that it was like he had no neck. He never really got a good look at him, uh, you recall. And he said, but the one thing I noticed, he seemed to have no neck because he had this collar pulled up and this hat on. And so he goes out there and, and there's a flat tire. And he changes the flat tire. And he, he makes, he makes them get out of the, the vehicle because he's got to jack it up. And he said they, you know, they get out on the other side and they stand in this huddle, you know, away from him as though they're fearful of him almost. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, he changes the tire and then he's given 10 silver dollars. And, uh, I got the last one that he had, you know, he, he, after he died, his friend, uh, gave it to me. Yeah. I found that interesting. You know, if you're going to do business and you're an alien, perhaps you think that silver coins are, are, the, are, are you know, okay to use, you know, right. because that's what, the, that's what they gave him. Yeah. But he said he never got a chance to get any more. He sure wished he could get some more because he took it someplace over in uh, Nebraska and they gave him, you know, like 15 or $20 for it. So he thought he was rich. <laughs> <laughs> he wished he could get some more of those, those silver dollars. But I found that a, not only a chilling story, but a really interesting story about how he described the creature that came to his door, how he, um, uh, the fearfulness of the passengers inside and, and then his, his, uh, his whole, uh, idea that they were taking. I said, well, where do you think these people are going? Because he said they, the guy would come back or the driver would come back, not the guy, but the driver would come back and there wouldn't be any passengers. And he said, well, he thought they were, he said if they left them here on the reservation, everybody'd know it, you know, because right. everybody knows everybody. So he said they must be taking them. You know, like to a airport or to a bus terminal someplace and just, then they're just mixing in with the population and nobody really knows. God only knows why. That's the scary. You wonder why, why they are doing this, but hopefully well, it's just it, for it's, people. But it's certainly <laughs> interesting, is, and it is chilling, you yeah. know, when he told me this story, I thought, my goodness, you know, maybe the, maybe the one next door to you, you don't know, you know. <laughs> I've had some strange neighbors. That may be, that may be possible. <laughs> um, another sort of uh, theme or trend or sort of through line that I noticed uh, over the course of these stories is a lot of the witnesses, they say they talked to the entities. And I thought it was interesting, and maybe you can extrapolate on this or, or give me your thoughts on it, but I thought it was interesting that throughout all the stories, and I think in a couple of points you even actually sort of stop and ask them to clarify, no one ever exactly says like that they were literally talking, but they don't even say, they never really kind of get around to explaining how they communicated with these entities. It's presumed to be telepathy. You know, I mean, what do you think? Well, I think it was, uh, I think it was telepathy. Um, uh, you know, because I, you know, like you said, I did ask some of them, well, was he speaking? How did he, how did he sound? And they said, well, you know, all of a sudden they said, well, we don't know. Right, it speaks you know, to the because, perspective of the witness you know, in a way. And, and then they just had to stop and think, how did they communicate with us, you know? They just knew what the entity, you know, the, the, the conversation that was going back and forth. They just seemed to know. They said that... Right, know. right. Well, that's that's what I found interesting because, you know, you hear these other UFO stories from, 
you know, maybe non, non, uh, non-American Indians, and they always seem to get a little tripped up or stress the, the telepathy part of it. It's, a, it's all, you know, it always seems to come up like, you know, oh, but they were communicating via the mind. But in, in these stories, it was, again, matter of fact. It was, yeah, we were talking. Well, how were you talking? Well, I, you know, I didn't really even think too much about it. He was just talking to me. So I thought that was interesting. Well, and that I think that part of that comes, uh, you know, from, at least in part, from some of the cultures, because some of us, right. you know, I mean, and spiritual ceremonies and different types of traditional ceremonies, you know, feel that we, we receive messages and that, you know, we get information, um, that, you know, um, you know, and I think if you read accounts of, of, uh, different spiritual men, you'll see that as well, you know, so that communication, um, doesn't always have to be communication, uh, verbal communication. It can be, um, messages that you receive otherwise. But that's the difference, I think, between, um, again, etic and emic research, because I accepted that without really, um, questioning it. And then when, um, there, there are just a couple of times I finally just said, well, where are you talking? Uh, because I found that interesting myself. Because sometimes I felt when I was talking to them that even though there wasn't an oral conversation going on, that they felt comfortable in, in the kind of, in, you know, I think just using their minds, you know, in, in their communication. Which is natural. Yeah. Interesting. Another sort of thing that, that stood out to me in these stories, we, we kind of gone over the idea that there's all these different races possibly coming here. And that, and, that you talk about chilling. Another aspect of it was uh, in one of the stories, a few of the stories, but in one in particular, the the witness says these star travelers are different from the original star people. Mm-hmm. So to, to to dispel this misconception that I mean, they, some cultures do believe that there were these star people that predated and were amongst the American Indians, but right. sometimes in these cases they're also saying that there's these other races that are now coming here that are not right. from the original. Uh, star people right. line, if you will. And I sure found that in Mexico because, you know, I spent four years traveling to Mexico among the Maya. And along the way, uh, I had gone there for a, originally when I planned my trip to Mexico to, uh, I had not intended to collect UFO stories. But when I, when I left for Mexico, I had, it was kind of following a teenage dream of, of uh, following in the footsteps of these uh, um, explorers, these two explorers, Nick Catherwood and Stevens, who had made this trek through, Me- through Central America and Mexico looking for these ancient cities that they had heard rumors about back in the, well, they started out in 1839. I was so fascinated by what they did that I decided when I was a teenager, I was going to do this one day. I was going to follow in their footsteps. Well, back in 2006, well, you know, you read all the things that uh, uh, Eric Von Daniken has written and all these different people about uh, um, ancient astronauts and how, you know, Pacal in in uh, Palenque was an astronaut and all these out what to me were very outrageous things. Um, just another example of saying, well, here are these indigenous people who couldn't possibly be smart enough to build these cities. And so I set out not only to follow in, in uh, Stevens and Catherwood's footsteps, but I also wanted to 
to find out if I along the way if there was anybody who would talk to me about UFOs and and of course uh, I found uh, much more colorful stories much more um, uh, among the Maya I mean they they believe they came from Pleiades yeah. um, and and so that's a part of their belief system this is where we came from this is who we are and so they don't make any excuses for that. And I ran on to um, a professor down there who, who literally told me, he said, you know, I, I believe what happened is that um, that many of the, the people who, who came here were scientists and engineers and they helped us build these great cities. And when their job was done, they went back to where they came from and we stayed behind. And this is who we are now, you know, I mean. Yeah. And, of course, that was his idea, but then he used a lot of uh, examples to show me why he felt that way, you know. Yeah. And so it was interesting to me to find that commonality, you know, that, that uh, you start talking to indigenous people. And I found that in Australia, too, when I was in Australia. Uh, a real, really strong connection with the star people and with the stars. Why do you think that this there's been this disconnect between the natives of all these places, and, you know, it's, I, I, well, I think, you, I think you know what I mean. You, yeah, you know the question because, before I can finish saying it, so, okay. Well, I think when you, when you start looking at what happened to the indigenous people of this world, yeah. look at what happened in America, look what happened in Mexico. I mean, the cultures were devastated. The people, you know, I mean, they were in survival mode. And the same thing in Australia, you know, look at what's happened. I mean, the the disconnect where the children were taken away and put in boarding schools in in the Americas and in Canada and Australia, um, and where the traditional stories and all the things that they knew, so much of it was lost. Yeah. You know, you take the Maya, you know, all of their books, everything they had written, you know, only four of their books, they're called the Codexes, have survived the burning and purging by the Spanish who landed on those shores, you know, by Exactly, uh, yeah. So so all of that was lost and and perhaps the people just found it easier not to not to think about it, talk about it, you know, just survival. Right, right. Yeah, it know? seems that way. And 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 such a in a way it feels like the the knowledge and the information about the star people is such a precious um, knowledge in a way. Maybe it's maybe it's like they feel like we don't deserve to know about the true what really is going on or what really happened. Well, I think there's some of that, but I also think that that uh, you know you you've got a uh, centuries of people discounting what the stories. Hmm. You know, back when I was about I don't know a couple of decades ago, maybe no, it wasn't that long ago, maybe 15 years ago. I was sitting in my office at the university, and the dean sent for me. And uh, I went up to his office, and there was a there were a group of people there from NASA, hmm. and they wanted to talk to me about um, the star legends of Native American tribes in Montana. Oh wow! And here's NASA all of a sudden interested in star stories. And I was just kind of blown away by that whole idea, you know. And so I sent them up to Black, the, uh, to the Blackfeet Indian Reservation where there's some just really rich stories there and told them maybe you should need to talk, you need to talk to the people out 
in the field and talked to the people on the reservations. And when they first went out there, they talked about opening up some kind of a center that would be an information gathering center for all the star knowledge of the native people. Well, that never never happened. NASA's budget was cut and all these kinds of things. But if you go on NASA's site, there is a section on there about Native American star lore. And I find that really interesting because these are stories that people said, oh, those are just legends. They don't mean anything. Right. There's no truth in that. Is that what NASA says on the or do they Oh, no, no more. You know, and that's what I find interesting is how we've almost come this full circle, you know, where where the knowledge that we had was so disrespected and disregarded as just fiction. And now you've got people coming back and saying, well, what about those stories? You know, because, um, well, I always believe every every culture I've ever been in, you know, if if the story is told, there's there's some truth behind it. Right, right. Exactly. And we need to just start listening, you know, to what people have to say. That's absolutely that cuts across the board beyond right. beyond <laughs> right. beyond uh, Native Americans and 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 uh, the paranormal, but absolutely, it's all very fascinating and and. Uh, Speaking to that sort of idea, what you're talking about, I do always find it interesting. And someone, and one of the stories in the book does sort of mention this idea. So I'm not just plucking this out of thin air. One, one of the people, I think uh, I, I remember now was the it was the it was the guy who had the petrified heart. And you right. can talk about that a little bit if you want. And he said that he had been told by his grandfather or or through through the lineage that the star people lived on the continent with the Native Americans or the, uh, mm-hmm. let me see here, I keep saying Native Americans, I hope that's okay, with the, that's all right. okay. <laughs> with the American Indians, warned them that the white people were coming, left, took some of the American Indians with them, and sort of, were, were sort of like, listen, you either come with us or it's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. And the ones that stayed obviously went through a horrific time. And and they sort of uh, were left to their own devices because they didn't go along with the star people and leave. So I find it interesting that, you know, through all of human history, uh, as far as beyond the recorded history from the American Indians, I'm talking about sort of the, unfortunately, the, the extra- accepted mainstream history, uh, so much of the history of the North American continent really is lost. I mean, they very well could have been star people living amongst the Native Americans, you know, in the California area, in some of these parts of, you know, maybe five or six hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. While all of this, you know, European history was going on and all this stuff was happening in Europe and, and the, you know, in the Middle East and places where we have the recorded history. So it's remarkable. There could have been two different worlds operating on the planet that didn't actually come together until the white people came to America and sort of codified a, a unified world history, if you will. Well, you know, and, and one of the things I find fascinating is that they're finding all of these um, giant races. You know, they just I just read the other day where they had uncovered a a, a whole group of giant uh, uh, skeletons of people that that were buried together. Well, you know, I can't remember which tribe it was, but as I was doing some research. Came across this article uh, that was an old newspaper uh, about this story that had been told to this journalist by this uh, this uh, elder elderly Indian, and he had said that at one time his people 
uh, had been preyed upon by these red-headed giants that lived in these caves near where his, you know, where, where his people lived. And that finally, they killed them all. The tribe, you know, the, the, the warriors killed all of them. Just killed them all off. And I keep thinking about those things, you know, the, the different stories of the, of the, um, of the different tribes. Uh, one of the tribes tells the story of these giants that were cannibals that lived along, along the, the, um, um, the great river that they had to cross and, and coming out of, uh, uh, the implication is they came out of Mexico and crossed this great river and they had to be very careful because they had to get this, by this group of, um, of cannibalistic giants. So I, and I found all kinds of giant stories among the Maya down in, down in Mexico, you know, yeah. telling me different things. So you start putting all this together, you know, and you say, you know, I think, you know, there is truth in these stories. They're just not legends. They're just not myths. They are the truth of what was experienced and people just didn't, didn't listen. Or it wasn't passed on the way it, it was, you know, because, you know, oral history has never been as valued as written history. Let's face it, you know, oral history has always been looked upon as folklore, more or less. Uh, so it brings a whole different perspective. The other thing I think the other element that's playing into this is if you accept that there was a history of America before the white man ever came here, right? then that means that the indigenous people who lived here have some kind of knowledge that you don't have. Exactly. And that's difficult for um, for, you know, Historians to to, to, to write about. Let's face it, that's true. Because that means this group of people actually had a history and different things were happening, you know, than, than what was the norm in Europe, you know, when the people came here. Exactly. And it's not, we're not just talking about like decades. We're talking about hundreds of years, if not thousands. And, And you know, if you look at, if you go down into, into Mexico and Central America and you visit the Maya Indian and you visit those ancient cities down there, I mean, these people were building magnificent cities with 100, 200, 300,000 people living in them when Europeans were still living in caves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing when you go and you see these cities of 4,500, 5,000, 8,000 structures, you know. It's quite amazing. Just, and there's you know. a belief that uh, there were cities very similar. Not as many, but some cities very similar here in America, but they were just flattened when, when the move westward went and, and a lot of, uh, a lot of those cities were de- destroyed. Yeah. Now, this is totally off course, but have you ever looked into the whole, uh, theories and stories about there being stuff in the Grand Canyon that, that's been covered up? You know, I've read about that, but I've never come across anyone who had stories to tell about that. Okay. Of course, I haven't spent much time down in that, uh, you know, in that Grand Canyon area either. So I haven't come across, but I've certainly read about it. Alright, yeah, I just didn't know, yeah, I was wondering if it ever came came across your radar during your travels. No. Um, Now, talk a little bit about this, because I I live in Boston. You know, I'm in the suburbs of Boston, so I I have visited some Native American reservations uh, when I was very young. But I I guess, paint a picture, because we've got listeners all over the world. You know, we've got listeners in Europe, we've got listeners in Asia, so they, they may not be familiar with 
the the setup here because it sounded like from a lot of the stories the witnesses say the the reservation is an ideal place for the UFO to land or a good place in one instance for a UFO to crash because uh, it's so far off the beaten path and so vast that no one's really going to know. So I guess I guess like I said, paint a picture here. How big are these reservations, and is that pretty much the case that you know a UFO could land on some guy's property? Oh, absolutely. Res- okay. Because especially when you get out to places like North and South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, um, not um, um, uh, New Mexico, um, Arizona. Uh, Arizona is more populated. But yes, but the Navajo Indian Reservation is huge, so that would be an ideal place to land where no one would see you. Um, uh, or if someone did see you, it would be a very small number of people, uh, wouldn't attract a lot of attention. Uh, out here in Montana, absolutely, there, it's just, you know, I mean, it's, you know, well, there's a whole, only a million people in the, what are we, the third or fourth largest state in the nation, I guess third. Oh, wow. And Texas and Alaska, so you can imagine the wide open spaces here. Uh, the same thing in Wyoming, they don't, they, I think they have around 700,000 people. Uh, so there's just a lot of area for people to land that no one would even know. And that's, you know, um, I don't know if you recall the stories uh, of the, over the missile sites. You know, South Dakota used to be pro- proliferated with missile sites. Absolutely, you know, uh, yeah. Because it was barren, and, you know, the, I guess the government figured, well, if, you know, if they're going to shoot at anybody, they might as well shoot out there in South Dakota where there aren't very many people, you know. <laughs> yeah. Same thing with Montana, you know. But they took all the missile sites out of Montana and and, uh, and South Dakota, but, you know, those missile sites were right along the side of the highway, and they would... And you had those people that, you know, be traveling along and there would be a UFO hovering over those missile sites. In fact, I've received several letters from people who have read the book who have told me very similar things had happened to their father or their grandfather or to them as they were driving along those roads in South Dakota. Okay, so yeah, like I said, I, I I just wanted to sort of paint the picture here for people that uh, you know, very desolate country. Right, exactly. See, uh, you know, when the government put native people on reservations, they didn't give them prime land, hmm. and so you've got a lot of um, um, non-farming land, a lot of uh, sagebrush, a lot of desert-like conditions. Um, so they didn't. You know, I mean, they didn't give them the land that the homesteader wanted. They gave them the land that nobody else wanted out here in the West. Right, exactly. And in some cases, they happened to give them land where there was coal or where there was oil. (laughs) That was unintentional. Did they get to keep it? Well, I think the BIA was regulated it, and I don't know how much money they got from it. I think that's still <laughs> a matter of okay, it's still questionable. Um, but you said you've you've collected like a thousand stories here. Uh, I, I guess I was talking about this with a friend of mine, and uh, he he asked me to sort of ask you this. So, um, give me sort of a ballpark breakdown of of the different types of aliens. How many you know types have you heard about uh, through these? through these stories. Uh, just off the top of my head from having read the book, I'm thinking of some were described as sort of insect-like. Uh-huh. Uh, would would that include the greys, or was that a distinction from the greys? I think it was a distinction from the greys. Okay. 
yeah. And uh, that one, that one, uh, those two friends. Remember the two coaches? Yes. That that, that was the one that that uh, encountered the Grays. You know, they were. Although they felt that their bodies were insect-like because they were so skinny, but the eyes were definitely described the Grays. Right. That's what I was trying to sort of put yeah. my finger on. But there's also descriptions of human-like ETs. Right. Um, and uh, ones that were. Uh, very tall, yeah. but very thin. Um, ones that could appear and disappear at will. Um, so I would say probably six, six yeah. or seven different types. Interesting. Yeah. But now in Mexico, I came across one that they said uh, um, this um, Maya elder told me about uh, a giant, a giant race that came from from the stars so that's interesting a, another one right yeah so it makes you just wonder what what's going on leaves me puzzled just trying to <laughs> trying to figure well, out all it does this. all of us but i think <laughs> one one of the things it, it does for us is maybe it gives it gives me comfort to know that we're not alone here yeah you know there there are other other uh, uh worlds and um other entities that are intelligent, and uh, maybe if we can all get our act together, maybe we can come up and and solve some problems together, live together. Let's hope so, but <laughs> I worry about the world. Uh, but didn't you find it interesting though that they that they said that Earth there were the violent types and uh, humans were one of the violent types? In the universe, right? Yes, you're, you're referencing one of the one of the star people or, or ET said to one of the witnesses that there are five violent races in the universe and humans are one of them. Which is right. that's a said that's got a, that's a downer in a way. <laughs> but you know, I it mean, makes he's perfect right. sense. I mean, we yeah. just war and war. You know, we're constantly at war with somebody, or somebody on the planet is at war. You know. Right. That may even be what draws them here. That might we might be such an anomaly. That they're puzzled by what is wrong with us, you know. But I just or think if we are their children, why did we choose to develop the way we did? Yeah, yeah. You know. Let's. I guess because our parents left us, so we're developed into. <laughs> Maybe so. We have violent tendencies. Um, now, one of the there was a pair of stories in the book that were also really strange, and that again, this is what I love about the book. Not only that these are incredibly rare stories, but they're. They're not just, oh, I saw a UFO. These are like mind-blowing stories. And, mm -hmm. and in the book, there's two here. In the chapter, uh, We Are Not of This Earth. Yes. Which I just thought. my favorite women there. Oh, well, amazing. Tell me about Ritha or Ritha. Because you met her. She says that she, you know, was not of this earth, that she has quite a story there. You can tell that. But what I, I thought was striking was that she said she had no belly button, and, and she showed you. So, I mean, you yes, saw this that's true. with your own that's eyes. True. Yeah, I saw it with my own eyes. Well, she had been in the military. Uh, she had been in the U.S. military and had retired from the U.S. military. And she told this story uh, to me. She had been in the military with my uncle, and that's how I met her, um, was, was through him. And um, she told me this story about this elderly Indian woman coming upon her on a on a on a crash out in the like the swamps and that her mother was dying 
and and this Indian woman took her and said, this is my granddaughter, and raised her. And nobody ever said a word. She got her a birth certificate and everything, and she, she, uh, uh, but she really knew nothing about where she come from, who she was, but she always knew she was different. Uh, there were just different things about her, how she, she didn't require much sleep. She, she, uh, she didn't have a belly button. She, um, uh, had this, this connection, uh, with the universe that was unexplainable to her. And, uh, um, she was really, uh, a fascinating, uh, a fascinating person. Yeah. And I found the other lady, the one that, that was, Claimed to be part Indian and part uh, black and part um, alien. alien. Yeah, wow. yeah. That was actually yeah. That reminds me. You're reminding me now. Uh, I, 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 I'm uh, thinking about that story. Yeah, that was a well, remarkable one too. Because remember her. She always said that her father was always cold. Um, uh, that. Um, uh, her father was always cold, and when when I went back looking for her, because she came to my uncle's funeral, and then I couldn't find her, and so when I had gone back a year later, you know, to settle his affairs and everything, I went. I kept looking for her, and I went to this one place, and this old man that was on the river there said, well, you know, uh, he, he implied that, she, he said she didn't like men, but then he went on to say, um, that uh, she was the strangest woman he had ever met because every time he saw her, it'd be 100 degrees weather and she's wrapped up in some blanket like she was freezing to death. And I thought that was kind of interesting because she she had described her father in that way, that he was always cold. Do you remember that? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, and, that, and that whole story here, was striking in yeah, a lot of ways. That, that here is some observer who doesn't even know her story, but this was the comment that he made about her that, it would be a hundred degrees out there, and uh, uh, she would be wrapped up in a blanket, you know. And he just found that, uh, that he thought she was a strange woman. Right. And, but I never did. I never was able to locate her. Maybe if she reads this book, she'll contact me. But never saw her again, you know. I, well, I saw her at my uncle's funeral, but after that, I never was able to find. Her. And none of his friends knew who she was. But I said, you know, do you do you know it when I described her? None of them knew, you know. I knew of her. Yeah, very strange. And the, the the relationship between her and her father, who was ostensibly, or you know, in this story, was an alien, was very right. interesting. Her father was an alien. She said and he never spoke at all. When, so they and thought when the crash at Roswell happened that they had come for him. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that an amazing? You know, that was just an amazing. Uh, revelation to me that, you know, he was sure they had, that his people had come for him, that, you know, he had been stranded here and, and that they had returned for him. Well, then in the other story that, that took place where the, the group was rescued that crashed. And that was before Roswell ever took place. Yes, that's the one where the, 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 the ship crashed on, on the, I believe it was the, the witness's grandfather's land, and, and they right. stayed there for like six months. They had enough right. stuff inside the ship to last for six months, which yeah. was, and then and they were there for six months, which is amazing to think that this that this happened and never got out. If, if it's true, obviously. Well, you know, and if, if you'd ever go there, you'd understand why. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is so far removed from civilization that that you know, I mean. It would be a, an astronomer's paradise because there would be no light infraction at all. It's an unbelievable place. 
But literally, I mean, it's miles and miles and miles away, and and I was there, you know. So, and it it's uh, it's totally isolated, totally isolated. I don't know how anybody could live there and ever, you know. I mean, there'd be no way of getting out to doctors or anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Just totally isolated. And in that story, they were rescued, right? But um, but they they had told him that was what was going to happen. Exactly. Come for him, for them. And and there was only one other family that was even in that region, and they had um, they had left and gone to live with relatives um, someplace else. And so he, you know, he he knew that they were safe because nobody ever came out that way. So it's just it's just fascinating that these things could have been happening, and we have no idea. And for such a long period of time, it's amazing. Well, I think there's a lot of places. Both in, in, um, well, there's a lot of places in Alaska. There's a lot of places in the western United States, you know. When you live in Boston, uh, you know, you've got people all over the place come out <laughs> yeah. here, you know, and, and, uh, I couldn't remember when I first moved to Montana. Well, it seems like we got a lot more people now, but for me, if I see 10 people on the, on the interstate on my way to Billings, I think there's a traffic jam because it's <laughs> just, there's just not a lot of, there just are not a lot of people that live, live here, you know, and, and they all live in certain, certain areas, you know, they're mostly, and the, the big ranches still exist, and, and um, the reservations are fairly isolated, and, and um, uh, not a, I think the, about 10% of our population is, is, uh, is American Indian here in Montana, so. Mm. So, um, you know, the webpage or whatever is just something that you guys do for fun. Do you have a, a real job? Well, that is our job. Oh. We don't technically get money for the hours we put in, but it is our job. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. How come you don't have any money? I thought you had a paper route. Well, I'm taking a sabbatical to focus on my pottery. Oh. How's that working out? Not good, Meg. Not good. What I thought was interesting, too, about that story with the with the crashed uh, saucer that the that the aliens lived on for six months was they, they got rescued. They left the ship there. Mm-hmm. And then the... Uh, the government came and, and built a reservoir, so they took the land away from uh, from the guy. And, and it seems he doesn't know for sure. No one really knows for sure if the government ever found the the saucer, but you almost think that it may have. Well, That's and, and he, was, he, he thought they did. Hmm. He thought they took it away, that they found it and they took it away. And I said, well, how in the world would, could they carry something that size out of here? He said, well, you know what it's like. You know, they put it under a tarp and haul it away. And the people themselves were so in awe of the big machinery they brought there, you know, and yeah. would stand along the side of the road just to see it, you know, so they wouldn't think anything about it. And, uh, and of course, um, unless they had been away, too, they probably hadn't heard of UFOs, you know. A lot of these guys had heard about these things, these elders, because they had, they were in World War One or World War Two, you know. Yeah. Uh, or, I mean, World War Two, and had been away and knew about stuff like this, you know, and, um, but... It's been an interesting 20, 25 years that I've had collecting these stories. Oh, yeah, it sounds that way. And and I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to make this too too much of a downer uh, note here, but I couldn't help but notice that, a, 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 you know, a good number of the people who shared their stories with you, they've passed away since, since right. telling you the stories. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Was that just be, 
a result of how long you've been doing this research or? I think part of it because some of them told me the stories. When they told me the stories, they were elders, you know. Right, and right. And, uh, and then, um, you know, I've been doing this research for such a long time. And, and many of the people, even if they told me, if they were in their 50s, you know, uh, many of them have, have passed. Mm. And then the more recent stories I've uh, I collected, though, haven't, you know, they're still fine. They're still around. Yeah, that's good. But a lot of the elders are gone, yeah. Well, did you get the impression that maybe this was, you know, earlier you talked about the plow driver in Alaska and how you thought he needed to get this off his chest. Was it, do you think that was sort of an indication with some of these folks that, you know, they were getting older and they wanted, you know, they they, they kind of wanted this on the record even if it was anonymous? You know, I never thought of it in those terms. They could have been. I, um, I you know, I, I, I just don't know. I, yeah. I, I can't. I know that some of them told me they would like, uh, that they would like their story to be told, mm. you know, but as long as they were sure that nobody would, would know who they were. But I, I don't, I don't know if that was the motivation or not. I never asked them. Um, well, the, the great part about the book is, you know, it's, you hear it from the skeptics all the time, but like, when you read the book, it really, I cannot, because maybe I'm not as cynical as, as some of the skeptics, but I cannot fathom a reason why like an 80 year old dude is gonna make up a story about a UFO that he's only gonna tell one person and then also tell you. Like that doesn't make any sense to me that, that, that this would be a fabrication. And that happens again and again and again in the book. Well, and that's true, and and some of those people I knew twenty, twenty five years before they ever told me their stories. <laughs> you know, I mean, they they you know, I think there was a real trust factor there that had to be um, achieved before they they told me their stories. Because, right. Um, and so some of them knew me um, a long time before they ever told me their stories, and and they were you know, um, I knew them when they were in their. 50s or early 60s, and, and here they are at 80 years old saying, well, I have a story that never told anybody, but, you know, maybe it's time to tell it. And, and so it was, it was, and I felt really privileged, and I felt humbled that I was the one that, that they chose to tell the story to. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like I said, these are such incredibly rare stories that, again, I go back to the idea, why would, you know... Just, you know, to take the devil's advocate point of view and try and poke holes in this, it's, it's, you know, personally for me, it's impossible. I can't really come up with any, you know, the only sort of justification I can think of is to is to add some allure, I guess, maybe, to the American Indians. But I can't understand. Well, and I have no interest in right, doing exactly. that, you know. Right. And, and, you know, I've spent my career working with, with Native people, and, you know, I'm not... Um, um, I consider myself professional. Um, oh, absolutely! Yeah. And and you know would would never uh, even consider such a thing because I I really you know I wanted to present as they told me, uh, and I hope that the honesty and the sincerity of the people came across. That was that was the most important thing to me to uh, let people um, to give people an idea that this wasn't just some big story that somebody was making up or exactly yeah. or I wasn't intimating that I wasn't intimating that you were adding <laughs> to the dealer. Um I'm just sort of like trying to think of what this what the critics would say, the skeptics would say. And it's about well, like I, I said the, I can't you know the the skeptics say, well you you know, you don't tell who they are. 
you don't, um, um, you know, I think those are the criticisms right. that I get, is that I'm not willing to tell them who they are, and I'm not. Uh, if they want to say, well, discount it for that reason. But um, I think you're going to be amazed with the next book that comes because I have some... I'm, you know, I'm traveling through Central America and Mexico, if you can imagine, and and I don't have any contacts or anything in terms of how I'm going to, you know, is anybody going to talk to me? How am I going to find out anything about um, uh, UFOs? And and you know, there's a, a language barrier, there's a cultural barrier, yeah. there's there's a gender barrier. Um, you know, just a lot of things that I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to ask. And, and I remember, um, uh, going to Palenque and as I enter Palenque, um, a young Maya man approaches me and says, have you heard about our, uh, Pakal, our ancient astronaut? Out of the clear blue sky, and I'm thinking, how could this happen? <laughs> I'm here, you know, to learn about these things, and here I am being approached by a young man asking me just, have you, and, and no, I hadn't said a word. I mean, I hadn't uttered a word. I just had paid my money to get into the site. And, of course, you know, he's featured in, in Eric von Daniken's book, you know, and he describes how he's in a spaceship and, you know, doing all all these different kinds of things, and that's how I was, was approached. And over, just a lot of things that, that uh, a lot of the stories I was told there were, um, well, the majority of the stories just happened by chance. Um, and, and I think that's what makes it, makes these stories so interesting is that, is it's not something that somebody has a chance to plan. Right. Or, you know, to make up, it just happens by chance, and you people sit down and tell you a story. Exactly. This isn't a situation where, like, you know, you're, you're rolling in with a TV crew to, right. you know, wrangle people to go tell you these stories. These, right. these just happen when you're talking to them and stuff. And, and, yeah. and in some instances, you get the impression that the witness is kind of, uh, there's one where, uh, there's a couple where the, where the witnesses are kind of gruff at first with you. You can kind of tell they're sizing oh, you yeah. up to make sure that you're, you, you know, you're on the level. Right. So I thought that was and pretty interesting. It was it was certainly an interesting journey for me, and I do hope my readers enjoy it. And, and uh, um, I appreciate you, you know, well, having me on your show. Oh, and, absolutely. And, uh, it's It's been a pleasure. We're not done yet, though, are you? So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was an hour interview. Oh, can we go a little longer? I was oh, I, sure. I, had sure. I, didn't, for like I didn't know it was uh, two I hours, though. Okay. We got plenty more to talk about. I, I wanted okay. to ask you. Um, this goes completely off the again off the off the rails here uh, of the subject of the book. Tell me a little bit about what you've heard about about Bigfoot. I didn't hear anything from American Indians. Oh, okay. now, I heard shape shifting stories, All right. but not Bigfoot stories. Um, the only Bigfoot stories I heard were in Mexico. Interesting. But it may be you know a lot of the Bigfoot stories. I think come out of the Northwest, like uh, Oregon and Washington and uh, Idaho, and, I th- and maybe some even in Montana. But um, uh, none of the none of the stories I was I was not told any Bigfoot stories okay. by American Indians. I was told about little people, but not about about. Uh, well, tell me about Mexico. these. Tell me now. I'm interested in this. Tell me about these little people. 
Well, a lot of the native cultures have stories about little people that intervened in people's lives. And and um, one day I just happened to be um, visiting with a, a student, and uh, uh, we were talking about stories, and I was telling him about little people, and he said, well, I have a story to tell you. And so then he told me about when he was a young boy, how he had gotten this bicycle, and he loved going to school because he could ride this bicycle, and he had wanted this bicycle for so long. And his mother told him that he could ride this bicycle as long as it didn't snow. Oh, Every morning yes, he would jump out of bed and ride his bicycle to school. And this morning that it snowed, he was told he couldn't ride his bicycle, so he decided he was going to skip school. <laughs> and so he heads out. And he's going to go up in the mountains and just spend the day fooling around, you know, playing in the snow. And and um, there's a um, uh, the old old man wolf lives up on the hill there, and he was trying to get by the old man's house. And the old man caught him and told him that he couldn't go up there because the little people were there. And so here were these little tiny footprints in the snow. And, you know, he just, it was just amazing, the story, you know, of, I mean, you know, how he talked about following those little footsteps. And when they get up to the top of the mountain, how there's a clearing there. And in that clearing was that round circle where there was no snow. And then they catch the glimpse of this, this craft going through the sky and the old man said and and their legends they had legends about these people these little people who came and who were still children so from then on you know he would every year he would climb that mountain with this old man and the old man was kind of a mentor to him and uh, when he was graduated from high school he went to tell him that he had been he had been drafted to go to Vietnam and the old man said, you know, he, well, he was a man now and he didn't have to worry about him indicating from what, what he felt was that, you know, they only steal, uh, they only steal children. Now you're a man, I don't have to worry. You know, you're going to war. So, mm. so it was a, you know, and it was a, a really an interesting, interesting story. And, you know, not one that I would have ever thought, you know, that he would, I would ever hear, but what a, a touching story uh, that he told me. His relationship over the years, you know, with that elder who always looked out for him while he was still a boy. And the legend said that the little people stole children. Yeah, that's what their legends, you know, that they they would steal people, and, uh, steal children, and never see them again. Well, one of the go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, well, that kind of that re, that rings of that rings a bell for me from having read the book of another guy who tells a story, I think he's abducted, and he says that he thinks, and, and he just sort of is going on in his intuition, but he says he thinks that there are people that are abducted and not brought back, which I, that's another uh-huh. chilling, chilling yeah. aspect of the book. Yes, and that's, that, and you know, I've thought a lot about that, because, you know, you always hear of people that come up missing and nobody's ever hears of them again, and, you know, what is that, is, actually, what is going on? Yeah, it makes you these, wonder. You know, I mean, you can figure that some of these missing cases, obviously, are, you know, are crimes. Hmm. Yeah. But what about the ones that we never find the people? It makes you wonder. 
because there's a lot of missing people out there, and they, they a lot underreported uh, story in a lot of ways. Well, in that case, you know the um, uh, the family disappeared, and just everyone accepted the fact that you know they had been taken away by. Right, that's a story in the book the too. Time, yeah, right. yeah, you mentioned yeah, the whole yeah. family was gone. That just the whole family disappears, never comes back, and and the, 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 it's just generally accepted that they were taken by star people. Right, and 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 that just it that was just the way it was, you know. And and it's interesting because they said, you know, on this this particular area, you know, the star people used to come and leave messages for the for the people, and then they they quit coming, um, and so. Um, you know, there's a story that, that, uh, is told about a, a place in Arkansas where, uh, the star people used to come and, and leave, leave messages. And then it was all this, it was a, in a cave and then all of this was destroyed when the state set up a, a state park yeah. in that area. And they said that it was considered a sacred site by several different tribes that would come there. And so, you know, I've heard of uh, that. That was interesting to me. An interesting connection. Yeah. Now, what do you mean? Maybe you can extrapolate on on messages. What do you mean? Um, well, what, I'm what, not what was sure the, what they yeah. meant. You know that that they never explained that to me. And even though I asked them, they they would just say that they that the, that they used to come and leave messages. Um, and I'd say, well, what kind of messages? And they would say, well, messages just uh, how to live and and. Um, uh, those kinds of things, and and I would say, well, how did they leave those messages? And and no one had an answer. So I'm not sure what they meant, but they would just say they would come and leave messages. That's weird. And I don't know if they told somebody, or you know, if some, you know, they just didn't. They would just say, well, they just came and left messages. <laughs> so that's strange, yeah. Yeah. And and just to just to. Enlighten people a little bit more on this story about the family that disappeared. I think we were talking about like 14 people, and it was it, it was like the house was pristine when they left. The, the dinner right. was on the table. Uh, right, you everything. Know. Yeah. And this was out, you know, I mean, this was was uh, in a pretty isolated uh, part of the of the reservation. It wasn't so far away that you couldn't maybe see your neighbor three miles away because you know this was pretty flat land out there, but. Um, uh, you know, you could see their lights at night. You could probably see their house if you, you know, have binoculars or something. But um, they just uh, disappeared, and then, and and it was just assumed that well, they had seen you know some craft and in, in the area, and so it just figured that this they'd gone away. They'd gone with the star people. So interesting. I find the whole matter of factness of it so. Uh... Interesting. Well, you know, they even had, you know, apparently, you know, some of some of the elders tell them that's what you know had happened. So, very strange. Very strange. Now, you you mentioned the the Indian boarding schools a few times, and it's come up a bunch of times in the stories. And this is something that I'd never heard of in in ever. So. I mean, I'd heard about the awfulness of the reservation and all the persecution of the Native Americans, but I'd never heard the story about how these Native American children were taken and sent to boarding schools and indoctrinated into sort of this European um, uh, 
uh, culture, if you will. So I guess talk about that because that's such an un, untold uh, era in American history, surprisingly. I mean, I really haven't heard much about it at all, if ever, actually, until I read the book. Boarding schools were set up all over the country, and basically they were set up. The federal government gave, um, to begin with, the federal government gave um, basically the Catholic Church um, these missions to set up boarding schools to teach Indian children how to to survive in the non-Indian world. And so many of these schools, the children would be taken at six years of age and Many, many of them, the children never got to go home. In the summer times, they would, the the um, priests and nuns would loan them out to local farmers. Uh, oh God! Uh, and would then the farmers and they would pay them money um, for the services of the kids. But the kids never saw any of the money. You know, the the church got the money, and um, they were they they could be quite brutal. Um, a lot of corporal punishment, um, a lot of, uh, um, the, when the, many of the children, when they got there, you know, they shaved their heads, they, you know, and they had long hair, and they were given white names. They were told they were no longer, uh, could go by their Indian names. Um, I've been told stories by um, people that uh, went to the boarding school and never spoke a word the entire time they were there because they said that you know they weren't allowed to speak their language so they just sat there and played played dumb. Uh, I've been told stories of of kids that were beaten, uh, girls that were raped. Uh, it was not a good time in American history, right. you know. And there's still some boarding schools in existence, but the ones that are in existence today are, I think, pretty decent schools. Um, uh, I had some nephews that went to one and, you know, uh, just thrived. They they really enjoyed going there. But that was a part of of, uh, of American history. And it wasn't until uh, the 60s that, that there was dramatic change. And then you started seeing the Indian-controlled schools, where schools are actually built on the reservations and with Indian school boards, just like, the you know, the small-town public school board, well, now you've got Indians that had control over the education of their children. But this went on for for a very long time in American history. Um, and the children, once they went home, many of them had lost their language skills. They had forgotten their culture. They, they didn't fit in anywhere. They didn't fit in in the white culture, and they didn't fit in in the Indian culture either. So I think, you know, that... That is a, a really sad part of American history. Same thing happened in Canada. Mm. The Canadian, um, Indian, in fact, a many, same thing happened in Australia with the Aborigines in Australia. So it was uh, something that is a part of our history, and I'm, uh, it might not be talked about in history books, but it was a, a very difficult period for American Indians and their families because having their children just torn away from them and put in these schools was not a, was not, was a very difficult thing to deal with. Oh, and yeah. some of the people that I interviewed were in those boarding schools. Mm, yeah, that's how, I, that's how I heard about right. all this. I'd never even huh. known about this uh, this whole, I don't even know what you'd call it, this tactic, I guess you could say. It's, it's really heartbreaking, and you can see why there's such a disconnect between the American Indians and, and you know, and, and the country. <laughs> and the mainstream society. I, right, I, I yeah. think it's true. And and what happened to, uh, and those are the kind of things I think that 
where so much of the, so many things were lost. Um, so much was, uh, so many things were not passed down because the mothers couldn't teach the daughters and the fathers couldn't teach the sons and, and, um, it created a major problem. And then you have people coming back to the reservation. They have been educated in these boarding schools. And now they're young adults and they're getting married and they're having children and not even knowing how to raise children because, you know, you learn to raise children by being raised by your parents, your parents teaching you. Yeah. So there's a, became a real disconnect. Um, and it's often talked about in the literature, uh, talking about historical trauma, um, the kinds of trauma that takes place over centuries that, of disconnect uh and and then one day, you know, all these this stuff comes together, and you start thinking about, you know, well, look what happened. If we need to resolve this before we can move forward, you know, come to grips with what really happened to us as a people. Well, you know, I appreciate the insight on that because, like I said, I'd never even heard about it, and and uh, it was stunning to me that that this happened. You know, that well, fortunately really- today, most most. Uh, um, native children are able to go to school right in their own hometown, you know, and, and right on the reservation where they grew up, you know, and, and, uh, but it wasn't that way until basically what happened is you had the, the, the Catholic missionaries, they were the ones that started. And of course what they taught was the Bible. They taught them people to read from the Bible. Right. Everything was according to the doctrine of the Catholic Church. And, um, they would have um, religious classes, and then in the, in the afternoon they would teach sewing to the girls and farming to the boys. Um, that kind of thing is what went on in the schools, and basically what they were doing was sewing their own clothes and cooking and stuff, you know, to keep the school running. And uh, and the boys were farming with vegetables and stuff that they were actually eating, so it was kind of like a little slave labor camp. And then you had... After the government, you know, you had separation of church and state, and here's the government giving money, you know, to a church, to church organizations for these boarding schools, and then you had the Bureau of Indian Affairs created, where the Bureau of Indian Affairs then took over the running of the schools, which was just as bad, you know, because they weren't educators, and they didn't... um, but there's still a lot of BIA schools out there right now, so I'm probably getting in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but not as many. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm sure it's not as bad as it was back in the day, so I mean, you know. No, it it's sounds, much better. Like yeah. I say, there aren't very many of them left. There's, but the ones that are in existence uh, uh, do a pretty good job of, of educating and caring about kids, you know? Yeah. Um there was one story, uh, to, I guess to turn it around here and to, to talk a little bit about something a little more lighthearted. There was, uh, one, one great story in the book about the guy who, he thought the aliens were gonna steal his dog. The oh, aliens I were eyeing that, his dog. I love, I love that one. Yeah. Chauncey, he was a wonderful man. Yes, well, you know, he said that his dog was, was just putting up a fuss. So he opens the door and lets the dog out, and the dog takes around the side of the house barking. And he grabs his shotgun to go out to see what the what the dog is barking at. He thinks maybe there's, you know, something out there. Hmm. And so he goes out there. And when he turns around the side of the house, he gets a glimpse of some 
something that is leaning over his dog, and he thinks somebody's something is trying to kill his dog. So he shoots at it to scare it away. And and it's this alien-like creature, um, you know, this pale, uh, small, what he perceived as a very weak entity, um, dressed in what he thought were pajamas, he said, um, <laughs> that were shiny and silvery. And, um, and later... He asks this entity where this being where he's from, where did he come, how did he get there? And he said, "Well, you know, there were, he, he came from the sky." And so Chauncey and his dog walk with him to the uh, to where his craft has has landed behind this butte. And along the way, you know, he gives this dog a um, command, and and uh, the dog obeys. And the alien. Uh, becomes quite interested in the fact that this dog obeys his commands, and and so he demonstrates some things for him, kind of showing off. And when they get to the craft, the alien wants the dog, and uh, and he just takes his gun and <laughs> points it in, you know. And my dog stays here, and the alien got the message and went away. But he said they keep coming back. Well. I was really touched by his story because, you know, I mean, um, his grandkids called him the, the man who shot the alien, you know, and it was kind of a joke, you know, how he would go out there and shoot at this alien, you know, to keep yeah. him away from his dog. And um, <laughs> the day he died, you know, I went to the funeral and, and I was talking to his, his granddaughter and I said, you know, I'd, I'd gone out back and everybody was kind of they eating and everything and I went out there and the dog was lying on the grave. They had buried him there at his place and, and the, the dog was lying on his grave and, you know, I got down on the ground. I was holding that dog and, and I just felt so sorry for the dog and, and, um, and I would have taken it home, them home, him home with me if they had said just take him, you know. Yeah. Um, because I've been known to do things like that and, and, uh, the granddaughter said, oh, don't worry about him. You know, he just needs time to grieve. She says, uh, we're gonna come back tomorrow and we're gonna pick him up. We're just gonna let him stay here tonight. And, and, uh, and so a few weeks later, I'm up in that area and I stop at the school where she works and I said, to, we're just talking about the holidays and everything and, and I asked her about the dog, and she said, well, he's, he he came up missing. And Chauncey always told me, you know, he says, I got to, those, those aliens, they keep coming back here. They want my dog. And uh, they keep flying over, and every time they come back, he says, you know, blue hides. Because they, <laughs> they're, they're coming for my dog, and he was just convinced of that. And here... His dog is missing, and they never found him. And I just thought, oh, my goodness. All the way home, I was thinking, oh, those aliens got his dog, you know. And <laughs> yeah. poor Chauncey, all these years, he had protected his dog. And I thought, boy, I better get home to mine. I don't want to take any chances with her being by herself, you know. Yeah, it's so, yeah. <laughs> well, that's that. the story uh, reminded me of another story in the book, and that's the girl with the horses. And she says... Again, the, we're getting some interesting insights here that we definitely have never heard in a lot uh-huh. of other places. And she says that the aliens told her they wanted to know how to take care of horses because they got some horses. Right. And the horses aren't doing too well. Right. 
which I thought was really like, whoa, here's something that I've never, another thing that I've never heard before, which is tremendous. Well, and, you know, we've heard stories. In fact, it wasn't the first, uh, it wasn't the first, uh, one of the first examples of animal mutilation was not a horse uh, in U.S. Oh, um, history and, and now, you know, you're, you're hearing this alien tell her that they have some horses and the horses are, are not, they're dying. And what is she, what are they supposed to do to take care of these horses? Um, and I, I found that one fascinating, you know, that she was, when she told me that story. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because beyond the cattle mutilation part of it, it's, you know, it's, again, we're getting sort of an insight into maybe what the, the veil being lifted a little bit on their end, on the ET's end, where it's like well, they're not just fascinated by people. They're, they're, they seem to be taken aback by animals, too. And I don't think I've read that much in little literature about that. Right. I don't think I've read anything, come to think of it. Not until Encounters with Star People. Right. So that's why I love the book. Well, I mean, and and I, wonder, I wonder if other people have encountered that and they just haven't talked about it. You know, because there's so much, you know, skepticism and, and, uh, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I often ask some of the people that I was interviewing is, why do you think that you see these things and nobody else, you know, you don't have other people telling these kind of stories? Right. Part of they say, well, because I, we're not so sure they're open to it. They're open to this kind of interaction because instead of, of accepting it for what it is, they're fearful. Hmm. Because, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stories around interaction with aliens is abduction. And performing, you know, all of these different experiments on them so people are more fearful and not, not open to open communication or, and maybe that's, that is the case. And then a lot of them felt that, that so much is going on that people just aren't looking anymore. People don't sit out on their porches and watch the sky and tell stories at night. They sit in their houses and play computer games and watch TV. Right, exactly, yeah. And there's some truth to that, too, you know, that um, that we don't spend the kind of time. I mean, when I was growing up as a child, that's how we spent our evenings was outside, you know, sitting on the porch watching the night sky and and listening to stories or visiting with the neighbors. I mean, mm. that, that was part of life. And I don't think people do much of that anymore. I mean, our houses don't even have front porches anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Yeah, we've become a very uh, a society that's sort of become afflicted with this sort of tunnel vision. You know, we're always stuck in the box of, of, of the Internet or the television or, or entertainment of some kind. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, I noticed that a lot of the the events, too, happen when people are out. You know, they're traveling and they they see these things. And, and they would probably see the same thing from their front porch if they ever, you know, sat down and just watched the sky. Mm, exactly, yeah. Yeah. But, they, you know, they our lives are so busy and, and uh, you know, we're a whole different society than... Then, but you take, a, a, you know, on an Indian reservation where people still do those kinds of things, you know, because you live out in the country and, you know, you still visit with your neighbors and you still sit out and watch the sky at night. And Not to say that people don't have computers, but a lot of them don't have computers, <laughs> you know. A lot of them don't, and, and they still live the way, um, uh, you know, people have in a... Mm. Uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. 
Now, you said that you have a thousand stories or over a thousand right. stories, and uh, I, I don't know the exact number in the book, but I'd say probably let's say two dozen. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, what what kind of stuff didn't make it into the book that that was close or that you'd like to maybe follow up on or publish in a future date? Give us give us some kind of some teasers of stuff that I, even I haven't heard yet because I've already read the book. So, what what kind of stuff is out there that we haven't heard yet from you? I had this husband and wife come to Montana State University as a a couple uh, students that were going to school. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day the husband was, they were in my office, and the the wife left. And uh, he looked at me and he said, I've always loved that woman. And I said, well, that's really nice to hear a husband say that about his wife. And he said, oh, he said, you wouldn't believe. He said, I first saw her on a spaceship. Oh, wow. And he told me the story about how uh, he, along with probably 20, 30 other little kids, were in this large room. And he saw this this girl, and he tried to communicate with her. And it was like she was totally in a some kind of a stupor, not communicating, but he was very attracted to her. And he said he never forgot her. And, and, uh, and he met her and he knew that's who she was. But he never told her. And he said, uh, one day after they got married, they were at her mother's house and they were going through this old trunk. And here she pulled out the dress she was wearing the night he saw her on that spacecraft. Hmm. And he said that he had told her, you know, that he saw her once on a spacecraft. And she says, you're out of your mind. <laughs> and he said, and he said, here was this dress that she was wearing. And he said, as soon as he saw it, he knew that she was the one because of the dress. Did it ever but click in with her that, that this happened? or Apparently she... not, okay. you know, but he was telling me the story after she left, you know, that that uh, he she was just so beautiful and he described the dress and everything and he said uh, then years later um when when he saw her he he was positive that that was the girl he had fallen in love with when she they were children and then when and he told her that he said i met you once on a spacecraft and you wouldn't even talk to me and she thought he was nuts and he <laughs> said then when they were going through all these things here's this dress and her mother had saved this dress, saying that maybe someday she would have a little girl, and this little girl would want to wear this dress, you know. And mm. so she had put her away, and he said, I knew then. He said, I met my wife on a, on a spacecraft. So I think that was an interesting story. I mean, you know, there were just a lot of little stories like that. Um, that A lot of stories that didn't make it into the book. Right. That um, were just as unusual. I mean, I, I didn't expect somebody to tell me a story like that. But oh no, it's it's fascinating. And uh, I've heard stories of of uh, uh, things that happened to students when they were out. Uh, uh, a couple of my students when they were out uh, uh, hunting and um, uh, lost time and became. Um, uh, and there, well, there is one hunting story I think in the book, but but this is a totally different story. Um, of, uh, what happened to them and and uh, missing all that time and and getting back home, and they were like two days late. 
and their family had sent out people looking for them because they were due back on a on Sunday night and they didn't return and they had no idea that they had lost all this time. Yeah. And know it. They remember seeing the craft, but they didn't know what happened to them once they were gone. And so the family had called and sent out a search party and and uh here they they estimate they probably lost a day and a half and had no idea where it went. Weird. So I think any of the stories mm. would have made a good book. Oh, absolutely. At some point, some point, you know, you have to quit writing and say, <laughs> yeah. these are the best. <laughs> well, these are tremendous. These these well, stories are you. tremendous. I mean, I've I've been I've been fawning over this book for the last two hours, but I really do love it, and I hope folks go out and get it because this is if you're a student of uh, the UFO phenomenon, this one is, is a must read. So I highly recommend. Well, and I it. think you'll find the next one just as interesting. I can't wait. Um, it's I'll, a different I'll, approach because obviously. Um, on this one, it was more of like a case study approach. Yeah. The, the next one will be, you know, chronicling. Uh, it will chronicle my trip through um, Honduras, uh, Belize, Honduras, and Guatemala, and then into Mexico, um, following in the footsteps of these ancient explorers and the the individuals I meet along the way and the stories that they have to tell me and. Uh, uh, some of the stories are quite amazing, and and like I said, some of it, you know, like uh, um, I was stopped at a roadblock by uh, by the military, and uh, uh, they asked me to get out of the car and sit along the side of the road, and and um, while they are searching through my suitcases and everything, and I'm sitting there, and and one of the young men spoke very good English, and he began to ask me all about myself and. And what I was doing, and and so when I began to tell him, you know, he says, "Well, I have a story to tell." And so he sits there, and the, and all of them sit there, and they add things to it because they all experienced, they were part of of what what had happened. So they they told me their story, and uh, so it was. Those are the kinds of things that happened to me. Um, in in uh, Mexico and and uh, uh, going through Central America, that people would would uh, just by chance sometimes I would meet people that would t- have a story to tell. Right, right. Very interesting. You almost wonder if it's you know something in the ether or some kind of you know like they know that you're sympathetic to this. Well, I think the thing you know. that about you know with me, I have you know I always say you know I'm not a. I'm not a hard scientist. I'm a social scientist. I'm a, I'm somebody that has always looked for, you know, like what we call the people from the hard sciences are the people who have got to have proof for everything and yeah. they've got to have, you know, they get out with their tape measures and their cameras and their, <laughs> yeah. you know, their radiation meters. I'm a social scientist because, and I'm interested in your story. Mm. And if you have a story to tell, I will sit and I will listen. And I won't make any judgments because that's what I do. And, and, um, and so it was, it was, um, and I think, you know, that people in general, regardless of what culture you're from, they know if you are, um, a sincere person or if you're somebody out there trying to take advantage. And that's something else I want to say, you know, um, I've been criticized by saying that, you know, she's just out here exploiting American Indians. And, um, uh, I have, um, I do- donated a portion of all the proceeds from this book. Any, any 
proceeds that I get, and that's even without taking anything, whatever I get from the publishing company, part of that goes to a scholarship fund that I set up 10 years ago, 15 years ago at Montana State that I funded myself for Native American students to go to college. And um, so that part of this money will go for that because uh, I think that's important. Um, it's important to me that, that Native people have a chance and and uh, I've promoted that all my life, and I will promote it even after I'm gone because that scholarship will always be there. I set up a foundation, or not a foundation, but a, um, like a fund. Through, the, through the MSU Foundation, a scholarship. Yeah. And so part of the proceeds of this book will go to that because I'm not interested in in exploiting my people or making a lot of money off of them, you know. I hate to break it to you, Artie, but this is the UFO field. You're not going to make a lot of money anyway. I know. So. You know, <laughs> not only am I not going to make a, make a lot of money, you know, I, you know, my publisher told me that. But, you know, it's just not, it just doesn't happen. Right. Now, did you, since you're such a big part of academia up there in Montana, have you run into any sort of... Um, you know, blowback or friction for, you know, getting into this oftentimes ridiculed subject of uh, UFOs and whatnot? Well, I haven't, but then I haven't seen anybody from the university. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I doubt that they will take objection to it, but it means money going into the, you know, into the scholarship fund. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, it won't, may not be a lot, but, you know, it may mean that another student couldn't go to college every year, you know, so... Um, you know, it's, that's, that's important to me and, but no, I haven't received, I haven't been in contact with, with anyone and. So, so you didn't run into anybody who's like objected to you writing the book or, or tried to warn well, you? Well, the only objections I've, I've received have been a couple of people who've accused me of, of trying to exploit people for money and. That's just ridiculous. And I, and I, I, I would never, I, I didn't do that. You know, and like you say, I'm not going to get rich from this book. You know, not when you, not when you're profited, not when you get ten percent of, of of the of the selling cost. You know, you're not going to make a lot of money. Exactly. But, exactly. Um, I did what I thought was right, and that was to tell their stories. Well, you did a tremendous job, and and you know, top to bottom, from the stories to to you yourself, there, this whole thing. There's an air of sincerity to it that, that is really undeniable. Like I said, it's ridiculous to accuse you of exploiting these people, and, and, and I don't think that the people telling the stories, I can't imagine why, again, I go back to it, I can't imagine why they'd be making up these stories. So that I'm not sure what you can necessarily do with the stories other than collect them. Because if we're, and to tell them. Right, exactly. I mean, we, they're not exactly probably going to lead to us figuring out what this is all about, but it's a, a very, very important that these stories get documented so we can maybe they'll add a little piece to the puzzle that we hadn't considered before. And that's what I hope they do, you know, is is that, and I think that's what uh, many of the of the people who talk to me hope that they would do, that, that it would just give um, um, more information out there uh, from a source that had not spoken out before. I mean, there are a few um, um, people who have written about, um, I think, uh, is it Brad Steiger? He's had some, you know, interviews with Native people and done some different things. And, and of course, Nancy Redstar. Um, but this book is unique, and it tells the story of the everyday person. Hmm. Absolutely. 
having heard all these stories now, you've heard over a thousand, and I know it's extremely difficult because this is such a complex phenomenon, but I mean, have you come to any sort of, I wouldn't say conclusions because conclusions are always nebulous when you're dealing with this enigma, but I mean, do you have any sort of idea of what's going on with these UFOs and these ETs and, and what, you know, why they're coming here and maybe how long they've been here or any sort of, you know, do you have an overarching sort of idea of what this is all about? Well, I really don't. It's okay. You don't, I, you don't you have know, to. I really don't. I mean, I think for me, um, personally, um, I, I take comfort in knowing that there, that we are not alone in this universe. Um, but I, as far as what they're, if they have an agenda, I, I, I think it would be presumptuous of me to even assume that I know what that might be. Yeah. I think if, if we if we look at the stars and we're not alarmist, we might be able to find out a lot more than what we have in the past. Because I think the information might be there. It's just that that because we there's this whole cult that has grown up around around the star people and aliens and UFOs or whatever and and we just need to accept that they exist and perhaps try to learn from what's going on. Right. Well, you mentioned in the, I think you mentioned here in the uh, preface that in the 70s it became popular to connect the Native Americans with mm-hmm. with aliens. I guess talk a little bit about that because I, 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 I came into this way past the 70s, so I, I missed that, the sort of fad, if you will. But what, what, what was that all about? Well, I think back in the in the seventies, you started having having uh, uh, people pick up on some of the star stories, and and then you had coming out of uh, um, uh, uh, waters and some of the things he wrote about the Hopis, and and um, the next thing you know, stories are coming out of Hopi country, which is one of the one of the tribes that really maintains a silence and protects their culture and their religions. You have all these stories coming out that about wars in the sky with spacecraft and oh, wow. and uh, 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 sightings of UFOs and 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 all of a sudden, you know, you have this kind of concept coming forth of. Uh, that when the world comes to an end, there's going to be a rapture that the space aliens are going to take a group to the sky and, you know, protect them and all this kind of stuff. And I think the New Agers really bought into that. They yeah. started and they added to it. Um, you had um, all these writers who became very famous and they did become very rich. Writing Chariots of the Gods with Eric Van Danik, and I think he was one of the first ones. But you had all these people writing about ancient astronauts and picking up on this kind of stuff, and they sold millions of books about this. Yeah. And of course, the Maya calendar added to all that here, and you know, as as the years approached, and you know, you went to Mexico in 2000, nobody even knew anything about the Maya calendar or or anything. But you go there, you know, I mean. I have friends down in Mexico that said it was just like a, you know, it was like a circus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, everybody out there praying and waiting for the saucers to land and and just all this crazy nonsense that was going on that um, 
had basically been created by people outside, you know, the cultures. And, and you know, even I think the Mexican government bought into a lot of that because it was a way to get tourists there. Yeah, that So makes they sense. just played yeah. it up to the hilt, you know, and, 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 you know, you're always having these UFO sightings and everything coming out. And, and people actually, if you went on the Internet, you'd see people thought that the spacecraft were going to come into these different Mexican, uh, these different Maya sites, and they were going to see them, and they were going to take them away. Oh, yeah. And, and so all this, this, and, and it actually started back in the 70s, and I think, it, you know, it started with, with, um, uh, a lot of these writers that, I mean, you know, Eric Van Danica, well, he wasn't even a, you know, an archaeologist. You know, he was just, and, and what has he written? 12 or 15 books and they've all been million sellers and people will come. And, and of course, he, the, the archaeologist here and all the scientists say, you know, all this stuff is nonsense. But I've been in Mexico and I've seen busloads of people coming in. From Germany, for example, because in Germany they really believe what he says. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and so they all come in here uh, to Mexico and come to see these alien gods and all these kinds of things. And I think that, that all of us, uh, you know, they, they just promoted this and, and there were some native people who got caught up in all that. And, uh. Well, I'm sure. Well, you know, just like everything else. Well, it's the, the, the great part about the book is, you know, that, you're just letting them tell the stories. You're not co-opting it and throwing it into some crazy theory or anything like that. It's, it's, these are just the stories. Well, you know, and I have no the theory. I, yeah, I, we, I, we established that. <laughs> I, I just, I just have no theory about what's going on. I just, uh, I'm feel privileged to have been told the stories, to have them, you know, given to me. And I just hope that it in some way does help unravel the mystery that we've been dealing with for over a century now or even longer than that you know in the book i talk about some of the early sightings out here in the west you know by cowboys and and miners and different people that lived out here that told these and in fact the one story out in california that happened in the 1800s where they said that it was a i guess suppose on a uh, an abduction for one of the first abduction stories hmm. The men that met the, uh, that saw the spacecraft land and they went to see them and they tried to force them to get into their spacecraft. And remember they said they had fuzzy, they were covered with little fuzzy hair all think, over their yeah. bodies. Yeah. And that happened in California. And then the, the same spacecraft as they described it was in newspapers all over the West and the Midwest of sightings of this craft. Um, so I found some of those things when I was going back through the history and reading about it. Uh, the story about the disappearing, uh, es- Eskimo group, uh, mm-hmm. up in, um, uh, I think it was Yupik up in, or Nupik, Nupik, up in Canada. Now, if you go on the, uh, if you go on the, uh, mounted police site, they even make a point of saying that never happened. Really? That little, that, that didn't happen in that little village. And I found that extremely interesting because why would they put that on there? <laughs> this is UFO, that there's, there's no truth to this disappearing village and this UFO. And yet the stories abound up there in North, in the North Country are told by people that that did happen. Yeah. Of the disappearing village. So, you know, you just, 
I just write what I was, I just wrote what I was told. Exactly, exactly. Well, you did a tremendous job, and you've done it. Thank you. You know, yeoman's work here, an invaluable service to the, to the native peoples and to the UFO community. So, you know, kudos to you for your work. Um, now, what's what's the timetable for the next book? And I presume uh, you say you sort of, sort of a, I guess an homage to these travelers, uh, but but it's going to contain paranormal elements, right? You can, you can be oh yeah, well actually, cont- I, I think you know probably it's going to end end up containing more um, uh, of the paranormal um, elements than it is of the travel. Um, what I what I ended up doing definitely was following in their footsteps. I went to all the sites that they went to, hmm. and I talk about not in great detail of how different the place was than what they saw. In many cases, when I was traveling, a lot of the sites uh, I had to go and knock on doors and visit with people and find out where some of the sites were and and. Uh, um, sometimes people let me onto their land that, uh, it was private land where the sites were that, that, uh, these two had visited and, and, uh, and people were just really open. Uh, it, it was different. It, it, it's different in, in, in the culture because uh, there was a real respect that I was, um, I was a university professor from the United States and I was interested in these old stories. Right. I was interested in this. Uh, in this information, um, so they looked at me in a completely different way than I was here, you know, in the United States. Um, so it, it, that was kind of a, a an interesting difference. I'm working on the book now. I hope to have it finished. Um, I would say by at least uh, the fall, and um, and then um, you know decide where I'm going to publish it and. You know that kind of thing. Nice, excellent, excellent. And beyond that, you said you, you know, you have enough for many more books. Do you, do you right. anticipate this is going to become, you know, more more stuff coming from you beyond that? Because I would love to read. Well, I, I would read anything know. that you got. That <laughs> whatever you well, put you out, know, I want to get my hands on. One of the things that I'd hope to do is do a three part series, and one would be, in a, you know, with with uh, the native people of the South Pacific in Australia. Ah. Um, because I did a lot of traveling um, in collecting stories from the Aborigine uh, in Australia and uh, in uh, the Maori in New Zealand and uh, different people in the in the islands down there. I'm not. I have to, you know, take a good look at that and see if I have enough, you know, to write a book. But that's that's something that I'm that I'm planning to do. Now, from that part of the world, did you hear anything that stood out as wholly unique from what you've heard by the American Indians? Was there anything that was like, wow, I've never heard this before? Not anything that 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 um, is totally unique. Mm. Um, certainly different circumstances and certainly... Um, Different beliefs. Yeah, yeah. But um, I didn't mean to put you on the spot with that question. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to think. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I, you know, I, I encountered um, one one man told me a story about being taken on board a a, a meeting a young woman um, at a um, at a party and and she was just extremely beautiful and and she looked uh, 
um, she was very different looking, um, but he was just kind of mesmerized by her beauty. And, uh, that when he approached her and, and, uh, started talking to her, she invited him to go back to her place and, uh, he claims her place was a spacecraft. Oh, wow. And that he, when he goes on board, that, um, he's, he's basically is held captive. And her brother comes, who's somebody that he, she says is her brother in human terms, and that he would be the same as her brother, and begins questioning him about different things, about the connections he had, uh, relatives and family, and, hmm. and, uh, then they just release him. Weird. They're not interested in him. That's strange. Yeah, well, I, uh, yeah, that's probably one of the most unusual ones I heard that I hadn't heard before. Mm. But he he felt they were looking for somebody that they could take away and mate with this young woman. That's what he thought. Ah. Uh. That they could literally remove from Earth, but because he had so many connections that it might... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, like yeah, who'd that miss might, you kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, that they, you know, they were looking for somebody that nobody was going to notice going away. Interesting. So I thought that was an unusual story. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that one. That one's an yeah, I'll look and, forward and to the Australia book. Yeah, you know, just some, just some, uh, actually this story came out of New Zealand. Interesting. They're, they're all very, they're, you know, I got a lot of different stories to tell and, and hopefully. Well, I hope that you, you know, put as many out as you can because like I said, uh, I, I, I eagerly await whatever your next release is because this book was just tremendous. And uh, I've purposely, this is sort of the wrap-up part, so we're, all, we're pretty much done. Well, I do want to tell everybody who's out there listening, if you're in the area of Colorado, there's a lady down there in Colorado that I just just have, I've communicated with her for uh, a number of years. And um, um, her name is Judy Messaline. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Anyway, she... She um, uh, moved to the mysterious valley outside of, um, out in the, uh, just in the deserts of Colorado, down in south, uh, southeastern Colorado, uh, near a place called Hooper. And she built a UFO watchtower down there. And every year she has a, a conference, a UFO watchtower conference, and it's a very small conference. People are invited to come and camp out and stay. Well, the presenters, they all camp out there too, and she has a big campground. And, and, uh, um, I told her this year I'd come. Awesome. So, Do if you know you're what... available, any of you out there listening and want to make a trip to Colorado to Hooper, July 27th and 28th, um, come on down because uh, I'll be there and I'd love to see you and talk to you. Do you know the name of this event? Yeah, it's called the UFO Watchtower Conference, I think. And um, It's ufowatchtower.com. So right. Is that there. what it is? Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. it is. And, uh, and they will have the announcement on there and... Uh, um, but she has, she told me, uh, that there were 67 UFO sightings from the watchtower in the month of November. Oh, wow. And that area where she is is the mysterious valley. 
And I don't know if you've ever read Christopher O'Brien's book called The Mysterious Valley, but that's the area that he wrote about of all the UFO yeah. sightings in that in that valley. And that's where Hooper is located. And yeah. she said that uh, in the month of November they had 67 recorded sightings. That's amazing. So if you want to see some UFOs, and and I'm not sure who else will be there, but um, just check out the website and... Uh, uh, if you want to take a mini vacation or something and uh, camp out, we're all going to be there. Sounds like fun. I wish I could. Yeah, maybe I think I'll, it will be. So check my uh, check my itinerary. Maybe I could make it out there for that. Oh, that would be great. Well, we do a show from there. I would love to. I yeah. think that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, folks should check out ufowatchtower.com for more on on that event, and also check out. Sixkiller.com. That's your website for more uh-huh. on uh, for more on your work. So, and and I, I can't thank you enough, Artie. This has been really an amazing two hours, and it flew by. I'm stunned that we've we've gone uh, two hours fifteen minutes here. Uh, it, I am it, it has gone by like uh, like lightning fast, and and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Well, I enjoyed talking to you, and and. Uh, I really appreciate all the good things you had to say about my book. Absolutely. I love the book. And, folks, it's uh, Encounters with Star People. It's from Anomalist Books. Just punch it into your Google. You'll be able to find it. It is fantastic. It's an absolute must-read. And I I purposely try to avoid getting into too many of the stories because I want folks to go out and get this book because it is tremendous. And like I said, Artie, I've loved this conversation. Cannot wait to put it out there for the BOA Audio listeners, and I cannot thank you enough once again for coming on the show. Well, you're sure welcome. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Artie Sixkiller Clark for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Be sure to check out her website, www.sixkiller.com. Pretty simple, all one word, sixkiller.com. And you definitely want to go out and get your hands on Encounters with Star People. Fantastic book. It is from Anomalist Books. You can find that on Amazon or at anomalistbooks.com. Seriously, folks, you're going to love this book. It is a must-have for any serious student of the UFO phenomenon. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and since we are well overdue with this edition of the program, we are going to eschew listener feedback this week. We had a good run there of episodes coming out on time and packed with great listener feedback, so it was only a matter of time before we ended up having to do one of these short end caps because we were late putting the program out. A thousand apologies. We're going to get back on a more timely schedule very soon. It has been an intense week here for me, doing a lot of non-BOA work. And as such, I want to get this program out to folks as soon as possible. So, no listener feedback here this week, but let me give you the rundown on how to get in touch with me. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. You can head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. Or you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is BOA's paranormal playground. 
theusofe.com. Join up and join in on the conversations there. Additionally, I am on Facebook and Twitter, so just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and you'll find me there. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of our online circle of friends. And finally, please allow me to plug Benal of America on Facebook. We are up to 931 likes, so we're not even really within reaching distance of a 1,000. But I'm hoping we'll get there in the next few weeks. If you have not liked us yet on Facebook, please do so. And be sure to check out the awesome postings from BOA Audio listeners on the Facebook page, as well as updates from me regarding follow-up stuff from the program and interesting news articles of note with relation to previous editions of the show. Before we move into the next segment, I will say we got tons of feedback to the John Rhodes edition of the program, so I will dig into the mailbag on the next BOA audio to talk about that, as well as whatever feedback we get here to the RD6 Killer Clark edition of the program, as well as any thoughts or insights from the BOA audio listeners on the program as a whole. Up next, please allow me to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Starting this week and moving forward, we'll be adding a new name here to the credits of the program. That is Ray Weigel, who has come on the team here to help us revamp Banal of America. So stay tuned to the website. Big thanks to Ray. He is a talented web aficionado, and he is already hard at work on giving Banal of America a fresh coat of paint. Our buddy Jeremy Boston is going to stay on as our graphics consultant. Stay tuned to BOA. Big things are afoot. And we've got new columns already posted from Marla Pena, and we got a new one coming up from Regan Lee as well. Banal of America, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Banal of America franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. There are two ways to help us out. You can head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That's safe, secure, and simple and they will walk you through the donation process. But what if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a snail mail donation? You can do that via the BOAPO box. Simply send your donation to Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And you can find the complete address under the PayPal button at Benall of America. As always, it bears repeating, my friends, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping Banal of America and BOA Audio up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, we are going international once again with another program that is long overdue, taped way back in the summer, but it has been sitting on my hard drive here for far too long. Our guest is Andrew Nicholson, the man behind Weird Australia, 
and we are going to be examining just a myriad of wild stories from the land down under, and it is a fascinating look at the world of the paranormal in Australia with Andrew Nicholson. That's on the next edition of the program. We return to the land down under to learn about Weird Australia with Andrew Nicholson. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Artie Sixkiller Clark for coming on the show. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners, the folks who tune in to the very end of the program. Thank you for your enduring support of Benal of America. It is truly appreciated. And, of course, thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benal, thanking you for listening and signing off.